welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly discussion of culture, news, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most astonishing metropolitan area between Calhan and Fraser. This week, we have with us Max Potter, who's the executive editor of 5280, and we'll be discussing his recent piece in Vanity Fair magazine about an extortion in Burgundy's wine country. Yeah, we're talking about France. Also, his profile in 5280 of Denver Health CEO Patty Gabot. And we'll also be getting into the death of Denver's Barnes Dance. In the studio, we have freelance journalist Jared Jakang Mayer, Westward's Joel Warner, and your favorite washed up author and ex journalist and host, me, John Dicker. All right, let's get into Max's piece in Vanity Fair. I'm not going to go into a lot of the details because I can't pronounce shit. It's, it's French, but it's a it's basically a crime story and a sort of cultural expose about Burgundy and the, the wine culture, the culture there uh, in regards to wine and what a big deal. Not only this this crime was, but how hard it is to report on something like this because it, they don't have the same sort of open legal system where you can file freedom of information requests or even just look at paperwork until the thing is on trial. Right. That's Max? right. Boy, you just said a lot in there and it's all accurate. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, going into the story, I, I don't speak French. I don't speak French wine. And I don't speak French law. And uh, those were all serious hurdles. Uh, but to back up to the, the idea, the genesis of the story, and I think, you know, lately, well, in the last couple of days, I've, I've seen uh, some, the response to the piece has been, you know, I'm grateful. It's, it's been, been pretty great. In, in some small corners, I think, of, of the wine world, there's been this, you know, debate and hand-wringing of, you know, is this much ado about nothing? Or, you know, as one critic put it, is, is this actually a ripping yarn? And I think what happens is the whole cliche of forest through the trees, you know, sort of thing. I think when you're in the wine world, you're paying so much attention as you need to and should to the details of winemaking and viticulture and, you know, trying to give the best information about the next, the next newly released vintage, that what you lose sight of is just frankly great narratives that are in your backyard that are in your vineyard and I think that's what happened here I mean let's break it down you have the best highest quality legendary producer of burgundy in the world somebody not only attempted at poison the vineyard but actually poisoned two vines that in and of itself stop right there that's a story yeah. that's a story yeah. so um I figured going into it, even though I don't speak those three different cultural languages, wine, legal, and French, literally, that uh, you just put on your reporter hat, and it's like any other story. You go, people are people, you talk to them, you cultivate sources, you educate yourself. I mean, that's what we do. That's what a journalist is supposed to do. And by definition, that's what a general interest journalist does. So, yeah, that, that was the sort of the beginnings of the piece. Yeah, I mean, you know, and just like... That little snippet that you gave us right there, I mean, it's such it's such a compelling story. It's one of those kind of great, like, killer stories. So, of course, the first question that came to my mind was, well, how did you find it? I mean, as you know, in the story, it wasn't even covered that much in France. Like, how did you stumble upon this? My, my wife and I were on a, a rare vacation last year to Napa. And <clears throat> we linked up with an old buddy of mine who and his wife who agreed to serve as our tour guides for a day through Napa and Sonoma. And he had intimated, and, you know, he'd said overtly that he had, he had come to appreciate and study and learn about wine. Um, but this day as he's given us this tour, what I realize is, is my good friend Brian Ignazi, um, is that he is now basically a wine expert. He's taken the master classes and, and passed them and done very well. And uh, it got to the point where I literally said, I'm expecting that you're going to take us next to your, to your vineyard. And he said, that's our next stop. And, you know, suffice it to say, this guy is really 
really now um, rooted, pun intended, into the winemaking world. And I said, wow, there's just so many stories. I feel like every you know label that we drive by, every vineyard that we drive by is just a story unto itself. And he said, absolutely. But he said, really, the story that everyone is talking about quietly in the wine community is the attempt to extort Romane Conti. And, and uh, I'll say quite uh, unapologetically, I'd never heard of the, the domain. I, I don't follow wine, don't follow Burgundy. But then, you know, the magazine journalist in you kicks in and you say, well, wait a minute. I haven't read anything about that. I read the newspaper every day. This is a major deal. And he said, yeah, it is. And he expressed frustration that in the local wine, well, not local, in the wine press, um, while it had been covered, it hadn't been covered to the extent that it allied anyone's fears or concerns. Actually, what it did was it heightened them because there was very vague information offered about what had happened, where, when, how, who, <clears throat> unless you were following the blogs in the wine world. I think I should just interrupt to just say, just give a little bit of background on the piece. Sure. The Poisoner basically sent an incredibly deep, basically a blueprint of the whole vineyard. Another, this is the other thing that fascinates me, is the vineyard in question here is less than five acres. So imagine, you know, your your Walmart Supercenter parking lot. That's the vineyard. That that is like the most coveted vineyard in the whole region, in all of France, right? Correct. And, um, and it's going for what's called a World Heritage Site status, which just shows... The value of this tiny little kind of postage stamp. Yeah, and I'd like to circle yeah. circle back to the value question because okay. I, I think. But I just I just wanted yeah. to say though, though, like it was basically pay me a lot of money. I already poisoned a couple of vines. I can with a syringe. I can do more if you don't give me a million, uh, whatever a million euros. A million euros, about one point four million U.S. dollars. Right. So that that's that's what the that's what the extortion was. Correct. Yeah. Do you want to give a little bit more of a summary of it? But you just no. I think I just I feel like there might the listener might be in the dark. Yeah, that's what happened, and they set up a uh, they being the the two domains because there was two domains that that were victimized, um, but primarily uh, the DRC domain de la Romanicanti. They they partnered and spearheaded the cooperation with the French police to set up a sting operation wherein uh, they caught Jacques the the perpetrator, and uh, we can come back to the sophistication or not of, of how he actually executed. The extortion attempt. But what Joel just said, I think, is really important. And I think uh, about UNESCO and the World Heritage uh, process. You know, I'm a pretty cynical guy, and um, the pretensions and pretense around wine really don't go a long way to endear that culture to me. And, and, and I had really a warped view, I think, because what I learned in meeting Aubert is that he is truly one of the most gracious, kind, sensitive, devoted um, winemakers, human beings I've ever encountered. And he, he and his wife don't have children. And one of the lines I lament that I didn't put in there is each of these vine stocks, this is going to sound like bullshit, um, pie in the sky, hallmarky stuff, but it's not. Each of those vine stocks, he regards as his children, and he can give you the story on them, and, and he knows them intimately. I think with this UNESCO World Heritage thing, he's not only advocating for his vineyard. In fact, I, I don't really think he is. He's advocating for this Burgundian culture in the Cote d'Or, and he believes that it has this sort of special place, and it does, and it's not just because it produces this wine. It's because of the community. And I think, you know, with all of the, the horticultural, viticultural um, winemaking terms, what gets lost is at the end of the day, we get a bottle of wine, right? And we want to sit down and we want it to be a good bottle of wine, but it's meant to be a catalyst for bringing people together, community. And I think the best bottles of wine 
not only grow from the best terroir, but they also grow from the best community and cultivation. And I think community, as cheesy as this may sound, is that X ingredient. And that's what Burgundy brings to the table in, in making its wine. And I think that's what makes the place so special. I've never seen, encountered a place like this before where everyone is both so reticent to let outside people into their world, but yet so gracious, open, and vulnerable once they do. And it's because I think they realize they have this special thing. And I think the fact that, that Romane Conte is, is so tiny. And this is also going to sound like so crazy, but it's so tiny. When you're there, you just get this sense that it's this vulnerable womb of Mother Nature. And, and there it is. And, and anybody can throw a leg over the wall, essentially, and do or attempt to do what, what Jacques Soltis did. And that applies across the board to every vineyard and every climat everywhere in the world. And this was watched very, very, very closely, and nobody spoke about it. So, And that's the thing that amazed me about reading this piece, is just uncovering this almost ancient-type world where real, true artesian work takes place, but these strains and these different plants have evolved carefully over years and how sensitive they are. And in comparison to now where, you know, everything agriculturally is so mass produced and you'll see big agricultural corporations like Monsanto kind of creating all of these, doing sort of the same thing by creating these genetically modified crops and certain types of corns or other um, foods and they how, how those corporations will protect those particular uh, creations that they've done either through lawsuits or through patenting. Ha patenting or, you know, I can imagine some of their crops that they have that are that they don't want other people taking, they'll, you know, grow it in some warehouse where, you're, where there is a high amount of security. And then you have these particular vineyards, which are so prized, which are so economically valuable, but some French crook can just go and, you know, live in a hut up on the side of the hill and crawl into them every single night and uh, do all these things. And there's, you know, kind of nothing anyone could really do about it, at least on the outset. Well, is that also part of the value was like that these climats kind of go back in these centuries of tradition. I mean, they it's still done exactly the same way. It's like if you start throwing up what security fences or whatnot, while it might protect the basic integrity of the vines is something is part of that that community or that or that um, culture that you describe going to be lost. There's there's one of the one of the things that came up several times from Burgundians while I was there. And they compared it, and, and I need to preface this comment by saying, uh, clearly, it's not the same thing. Um, this vineyard in Burgundy is, uh, not just to, to Burgundians, but to France, uh, two very, uh, very sensitive, very experienced, very mature minds invoked uh, the World Trade Center attack in speaking to me about this vineyard. And that, that is the sort of, I mean, there's no, you know, fortunately, there's, there's no human Whole. But the place that this holds in the hearts and minds of the people who know it, um, the, I mean, the symbolic value. the symbolic value of what it means and what it stands for, it cannot be underestimated. And that, that goes back to the UNESCO uh, application that, that Aubert is championing right now. And, and the other point that you brought up, Jared, about the corporations, you know, protecting um, their their secret recipes for different things. Again, that's another wonderful thing that I think is self-evident to so many people that cover this on a regular basis but i mean the domain was biodynamic before that was a word you know they they did it naturally you know everybody in burgundy i think has had their ebbs and flows and, and what they tinkered with over the years but really it's it's it has never changed 
the, the way they, they make their wine, the way they grow it. Um, it's about as organic and community-based and thoughtful and sensitive as it gets. Do you think that because this particular vineyard holds so much cultural value to the wine world, is that one of the reasons why the wine press was so sensitive about not covering this? Like, if this would have happened to some mega vineyard in Napa Valley and there was a big extortion attempt there... It, would, have... it couldn't have, though. I think that's what... Well, I mean, but but let's say there was some uh, equitable type situation. There was a crime yeah. that was occurring with, uh, you know, more corporatized vineyard uh, somewhere else. Do you think that it would have gotten as little coverage or have been so sensitive and not talked about within the wine world? I, I think that's a really astute question, and I and I think you could no one would want us to have an hour-long show on this, but, but, I, but I think that's what you're, you're talking about. I think there's the answers to that are really complex and really nuanced, and it depends on... Um, the coverage would depend on who's doing the covering, but, but right out of the bat, if, if it had happened, and I think it could happen in Northern California very easily, uh, that, that's what was part of my initial discussion with my winemaker friend when he was talking about this, and we're looking around, I'm saying, well, wait, we just walked right into your vineyard. I mean, I could... I could do whatever I wanted to do right now, and he just silently nodded. You know, this is the thing that they prefer not to talk about, and for good reason. But I think, look, a baseball beat writer doesn't always want to beat up the coach, right? And if, if the baseball beat writer has information that no matter how sensitively he or she presents it to the community, if it makes the baseball coach and the baseball team's life more difficult, and they have to keep coming back to that source and that professional relationship, over and over again, I think they're going to think twice or three times about um, how they cover it and why they cover it. So I think the blessing and the curse that I had uh, coming into the story was my, my ignorance of, of all of this. All right. This is a fascinating story. I highly recommend everyone can read it. You can buy Vanity Fair magazine. Um, you can also get it on a, on a website called longform.org, but you probably don't want me to say that. Um, <laughs> or vanityfair.com. Oh, okay. All oh, right. It's, it's it on the fully, site. It's fully online. It's okay. fully online. Yep. Uh, no firewall here, folks. We also recommend 10 burgundies that you could... Actually, some of them are actually affordable. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Now, let's get into the... 52. Did you bring them here so we could try them, Max? They're all in my car, right? Excellent. Okay, yeah. fine. After the, the podcast. The Latash is a little banged up, though. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the profile of Denver Health CEO, Patty Gabo, basically, the gist of this was kind of how this woman went from being... At first, she was a researcher at the hospital to kind of revolutionary, bugging Wellington Webb, who was mayor at the time, to let her run it. And then revolu- turning it into a, just this money suck that was on the verge of closing to a national model for how a public hospital can run. That That's the... the, the... Why do you even have me here? Because <laughs> you're going to launch into details. <clears throat> John sound... needs someone that he can bounce his voice off so he can keep going and going and going. <laughs> I'm setting the stage. Yes, please, yes. I'm setting the yes, stage. It's very nicely done. It's called well an exegesis. Well played. Want me to use another $10 word? No, please don't. Okay. <laughs> it's Sunday morning. My head hurts. All right. Yes, yes, she's, uh, you know, funny enough, it didn't start out that way. Um, the, the idea for the piece starts out with, I mean, look, you're, as the City Magazine, your responsibility is to cover people at note, people of note. And I think one of the ways, emphasis on one of the ways, uh, we define that at 5280 is your ability not only to affect change in your own silo, so to speak, but when you're able to be so efficient, at least ostensibly so efficient and um, excellent at your job, 
such that it transcends the silo that you operate in and you start influencing other other components and pieces of the city i mean we we would be not doing our job if we didn't you know profile or in some way cover this person or entity patty gabo is absolutely positively one of those people you you can't have um one of those muckety muck lunches at the brown palace or the capitol grill where um praise and respect isn't thrown her way and it's 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 not you know, when you're talking over lunch and it's sort of on background, that's sort of it's on background. People are saying the sort of things about her that they do, that she's powerful, she's influential, heart of gold, um, driven by, by, by soul. Um, those are stuff that, okay, I'm going to go write about this person. And um, she was all that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not shy. I don't think about in these stories you go where the facts take you. And, and this is really one of those pleasant pieces where the facts were... She's wonderful. And, and what she's been able to do at Denver Health, when you figure the vast majority of, I mean, compared to any privately run hospital anywhere, the vast majority of, of their clients um, are destitute. And yet they have, by any standard, excellent care, better than most private hospitals. And they're run economically more efficiently and, and are more or less in the black. And, you know, and that's one of the the paradox is that look at Denver Health and it just boggles your mind because, like you like you mentioned, even for a private hospital, their stats are going to be good. But when I don't know what the percentage is, but thirty percent of their <laughs> their patients can't pay, or they're so reliant on um, more reliant on Medicare or Medicaid or or all of that, you know, all of the things that are are set up to make you unprofitable. How does that even work? How do you how can you even uh, have those types of figures in your in your business model and, and still come out on top. Well that ultimately become became one of the the narrative devices um, in the piece, the narrative questions answered the piece. And I wish I wish I had memorized my own story because but I didn't. Um, but those stats that you just mentioned, they're in there and, and I'm I'll preface this by saying, forgive me if I'm off a bit, but fifty percent of, of Denver Health's patients are on some form of Medicaid Medicare. And within there you have somewhere between, I don't know, and, and the way this is classified is really vague by the people that do these things, somewhere in between 2 to 5%, maybe it's as high as 7%, they can't pay at all. What's also difficult about that, let's say it's 2 to 7%, but these are the folks that have the most serious injury, that require the most medical care. I'm not saying they do, but let's say a percentage of that percentage does. Um, that means they're costing that hospital a ton of dough, right? And where's that coming from? These people aren't covered by anything, essentially. So I, I think that's important to note. And how does she do it? Well, I think the ultimate thing is she's really, really, really efficient. And she runs the hospital like, go figure, you should run a business. And I think what really I found compelling about it is she became sort of a non-fictional allegory for healthcare in general. I mean, she says it at the end of the story. Um, I think healthcare today is ballpark a $2 trillion industry. Of that $1 trillion, basically needlessly lines the pockets of vendors and other healthcare market parasites. So when you start trying to take that on, now you're now you're starting to take a look, a real look, if you follow the money, at why the Obama administration, or for that matter, anyone that wants to affect change in the healthcare system is running into some trouble. This is about money, like everything else. When you start taking a look at how these um, segments uh, are productive or aren't, 60 to 90% of it is waste. So now factor that into when Denver Health was a bureaucratically run municipal hospital. 
I mean, most municipalities can't shoot straight. So now you're going to have a hospital run by a government that's going to cure straight. It's just a recipe. It's, it's not a prescription for a healthy hospital. So she's both an example of how to do it right in public medicine, but also she contradicts herself because one of the key things she did was she got control of the hospital from the city. From from Wellington Webb, from Wellington of Webb. all people, yeah. who uh, wasn't exactly known as a mayor who was uh, up for t- taking control away from the city and the, and the mayoral administration, was it because the the Denver Health Hospital at the time, or was it Denver General when it first? It was Denver General. It was Denver General, yeah. because it was just such a morass and and monetary drain on city finances that it was just like. Anything to sort of get that mess out of his, uh, from out from under the mayor's umbrella and someone who could at least do it competently, go go ahead and go for it and just 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 as long as it doesn't trace back to me politically. Is that uh, well? I, kind of I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly right. But it, it would it's fine if it traces back to him politically if it worked. Yeah. Um, and 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 I say this with with a tip of the hat uh, to to Mayor Wellington Webb because. I think his motivations were twofold. One is this guy was a product of, of working class slash working poor Chicago. He himself had a, a very serious case, I believe, asthma. It's also in the piece, but I forget. I think a very serious case of asthma. So much so that his family, so his biography, his autobiography goes, sent him to live with his grandmother in Denver, where he came to rely on public hospitals. And I do think he had a special place in his heart for the public hospital. Also, let's not forget, this guy is one shrewd dude, right? So now he's the mayor of Denver, and he's got this bag of shit on fire in Denver Health, or pardon me, Denver General at the time. And every, everybody's tried before him, and he's looking around, and he's saying, well, wait, nobody's made this work. And I think eventually what happened is uh, Dr. Gabot um, appealed to him in a way that made both political and intellectual sense and said, hey, look, um, why don't you let me handle this? Why don't we try something new? And I don't know that they ever had this conversation overtly or otherwise, but it would seem to me that the subtext is, look, if it goes really well, it's a win for everybody. If it doesn't go well, we tried, and we can move on to the next thing. So I think Webb cared. He's politically astute. And really, what was behind door number two? There was no other option at that point. It was going to go bankrupt, or we're going to have to find a solution. And I think, you know, and and Dr. Gabo says this, and and I I think she's absolutely right. The problem with public hospitals around the nation and the reason they're closing and being sold off is that there isn't the political will within those communities to trust and employ and harness the strategy the way they did. I mean, they that's what it came down to. People don't want to let go of the, the patronage and the graft that lies within these hospital contracts. So, so here's my question for you. Coming out from the story... Do you think you are more or less jaded about the healthcare system? Oh, it's I'm, I'm, it's hard to get me more jaded than I am right now about anything. Uh, you know, I, I have. <laughs> well, if you had to give you some of that wine, maybe yeah, I'll, uh... yeah. Well, actually, I'm less jaded about Burgundy of all oh, things. I see, there you go. Um, I would say that I'm I'm optimistic because of the sense of hallmarky. I'm optimistic with people like Dr. Gabot, and I, I think if they're able to elbow their way through the through the mosh pit of everything else. And, and, and affect change and make this happen. Um, I think we have to keep our fingers and toes crossed and, and, and look for people like this. And um, 
So I think she's a glimmer of hope. Beyond that, I don't know. Well, we'll wait for the 60 Minutes profile. So you can also read this piece online, we should mention. It's, it's, it's pretty, really interesting. Let's move on to the Barnes dance. Jared, this was uh, you're, you're quite passionate about this. Why don't you explain to the people who don't know what the Barnes dance is? So what this is is basically in Denver we have, on, in certain intersections downtown, you are allowed to cross as a pedestrian diagonally as opposed to just going between street quarter to street quarter. And the way that works is uh, periodically, whenever the, the lights change in a certain intersection, it'll, it'll, all the lights will go red for traffic, and then walkway signals will indicate that pedestrians can cross whatever way they want. So you can kind of go catty corner from different uh, crosswalks. And the way it's set up is that there's actually striping on some of these intersections where it indicates that. And when you look at the actual street lamps, instead of having just two little walker stop hands signs there's actually three of them and there's one on each light pole that faces into the middle of the intersection so you can go downtown there, and there's like stop. 16 of them right i think there's like 16 of these yeah they're mostly on like 17th street uh 15th street but in high pedestrian areas when you go down there and i i to research this out i went down there and looked at it wow you actually you did some legwork well I was, I was down there anyway so okay. i just pretty much crossed <laughs> the street that, that's my level of, of you crossed uh, the street. Thing. but this has been a denver-based thing this is sort of one of the few things that denver is is known for outside of the city the other three are the the denver boot uh the denver omelet and those you know those little snappy buttons that you have at rock mount ranch ranch where this was invented by a, a tra- denver traffic engineer back in the 40s or something like that and it's since apparently become a model that other cities have used the the reason why i brought it up is because denver's traffic engineers are proposing or not proposing it sounds like it's going to happen they're getting rid of the barn dance <laughs> the barns dance it is it, they, they we can kind of go into their reasoning for why but before city council last week they said we have to make the changes and now they're going to go they're going to take away those extra little stoplight hands they're going to sh- take away the striping and no longer will we have this i think it's an outrage yeah so uh jared why are you freaking out over uh traffic engineering why, why am I freaking out? Yes, because why? as as I pointed out before, this <laughs> aside from being a Denver-based thing, a thing that you know was originated here in Denver, innovated here in this city, and has since been put forth, um, utilized by other cities, other major cities like uh, I think New York and London have similar things. It actually makes sense as a pedestrian. If you want to, if you go down there, you'll be wanting to get across the street and stopping traffic at at one point. So that no cars, you're not having to worry about, you know, having to look over your shoulder that you're going to get run over and you can cross diagonally. It actually makes sense as a pedestrian. If you're a person who works downtown and you need to get, you know, walk in whatever direction to get where you need to go, it actually works well. Like when I was down there and I was looking what generally what were people actually using the diagonal crossings, I would say probably close to 30 to 45 percent when I would stand there during rush hour, people were they, they found it useful. And if you find it useful and it's an innovative thing then we should use it. We should, why but, not? But there is a reason. There, yeah, there's there is reason. a reason why they why they cooked this up. And I, and I think the guy who, the engineer who invented this, right, his name was Barnes. That, yeah. Thus the name, Barnes. And, you know, as I followed this, and, and I have to say, I didn't follow it that closely because, really, like, we're, we're going to get bent out of shape about we're going to have to cross, like, this way and that I, I way. i got to say, Jared, I'm in the who gives a shit. But, but, well, why don't you say their reasoning? Sure. The, well, it's not my reasoning. It's the reasoning. Why don't you say city. why you want to kill the barns? <laughs> because I prefer the electric slide across the intersection. You know, renewable energy electric slide. But but the reason I think that, that the city gave for uh, changing this policy is that there's other 
public transit concerns and that they want to uh, change the timing of the lights and both pedestrian, well, all traffic patterns in order to facilitate um, more use know, of the light. They're adding cars to the light rail. Like they're going from three to four in a lot of places. Yeah. Well, but Jerry doesn't support light rail. Well, I mean, but that's the way, that's the, if you actually look at the Denver Post article where uh, the reasoning for this was given out, it wasn't very clear. I it was, it was, it wasn't very clear. It, I don't really understand why. And I think that if there, if if it was, it was a very, very clear, definitive reason. There's been studies that have shown that this is less safe, that people don't use it. It's sort of a nostalgic thing of a bygone era, and we need to get rid of it. Okay, I'd be all for that. Their reasoning was is that there's two light rail tracks that go through downtown Denver, and uh, they want to add an extra car onto them during uh, pedestrian traffic, right. travel times, during rush hour, during Broncos games. And the thing was is that when you have that extra car, then it actually extends out past certain streets. During some stops, uh, that extra car will sort of stick out on the back of the street. The interesting thing about that is that they're still not going to get rid of the ability to everyone cross at the same time. So you'll still have a four-way They'll still do a thing where they'll have all cars will have red lights and people can cross in either direction. You just can't cross diagonally anymore. And the only thing I can put together about that is that they have to get rid of that diagonal crossing because if there's a train extending out into the intersection or a train car, then because of certain traffic safety rules, you can't have people crossing in that direction where there might be a train impeding it. Otherwise, I mean, you guys can read it through if you want, but I think that the, the the reasoning for why they're getting rid of these things is at the very least unclear and probably just another one of these bureaucratic rules that they have to follow. And it says, okay, well, you know, we have to extend, we have to make the lights longer, we have to, ha- we want to have this extra thing, and so we have to get rid of it because it's an entire system. And it I think kind that- of sad. I mean, we have already lost the Denver boot. Uh, the company that makes the Denver boot no longer works, does the boot in Denver. Now it's like the Milwaukee boot or something. So we've lost the boot. Now we've lost the barn stance. Are we going to lose our snap buttons? You can still wearing snap buttons. It's a slippery slope, wear... my friends. You can no, still no. park diagonally if you want, you know, some places. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, Jerry's going to be starting the Facebook page, I think. I'm going to do a protest. Yeah, he's going to do a protest. You can still cross anyway. diagonally. Why don't you just make up your mind that you don't give a damn and you're just going <laughs> to well, keep crossing diagonally? You know diagonally. what? This is a matter of principle, Max, and I encourage <laughs> any other Barnes Dance supporters out there, join me, my friends. Join me at in crossing cut. Sorry. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> Well, that's, that's, that's all the Barnes dancing we have time for. Let's get on to love and hate. Joel Warner, what do you got? Like usual, I have some love this week because I'm just a loving type of guy. Loving on a little tip that I haven't tried yet, but I got from a friend who's worked at some pretty fancy restaurants around the Front Range. And she said that if you walk into some of these really nice restaurants, including, say, like Frasca with a six-pack, and you say, this is this is for uh, the chefs. They will gladly just kind of whisk that back into the kitchen. And you can expect some uh, little uh, kind of custom treats to pop up throughout the meal. Which to me is just this great little kind of like insider. Some nice restaurants like here in Denver are now actually putting that like, like on their menu. Like you can actually buy a six pack for the, for the kitchen. For the, for the kitchen? Yes. So you're going to be having all your uh, chefs be drunk while they're cooking your food? Yeah, they, then they cross right. diagonally when they leave. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to cross anymore. As is their right. So that's my love. You heard it here first. Max, what do you got? I got Esmail uh, Rogers from the uh, Colorado Rockies. Um, just a, a real story that tugged on my heartstrings where he uh, 
his father, it looks like, is dying of colon cancer. And, um, you know, uh, Rogers wanted to be at his father's side, and his dad told him, basically, go play ball. And he pitched his one of his best games, if not his best game ever, and the Rockies beat the Pirates 7-1 because of him. Just a little inspiring anecdote. Uh, Jared? I'm going to hate on the uh, the sheriff's department and the district attorney in Florida that had charged this Colorado man uh, for creating, he's the guy, what was his name, Philip Graves, who wrote the book A Pedophile's Guide to Love and Pleasure, which was kind of an outrage earlier this year. He lives in the Springs, and he self-published it. He wrote this book, but there's been no evidence, at least, uh, that anyone's uncovered that he actually has acted on his pedophile uh, inclinations. But when this uh, Florida district attorney heard that no one in Colorado was going to charge this guy, they set up this pretty much a sting where they had a deputy order one of these books online. And when the, when it showed up at the, in Florida, they went and arrested this guy, Philip Graves and charged him. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what exactly the, the law was that they charged him under, but now uh, this Philip Graves guy has gotten two years probation for essentially sending a book to Florida. But if he wasn't a pedophile, how does he have the authority to write a book like that? <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, love and hate, uh, I, this is more like a wine, and I know it's <laughs> appropriate enough, and you'll say, what's the difference between all my other loves and hates and whining? But I went to Boston this week, and I had such a good meal in the North End. With, like, it was Italian food that just made me cry. And someone, you know, some journalist could do a story on, we've had a you know historic Italian-American community in, in North Denver, that's, you know, now been gentrified, largely gentrified out of existence. But why can't you get a decent kind of classical Italian meal in this town? I, I've heard that you can. I have not experienced one. And I've tried a lot of places. Uh, that food was so good. It really, I just wanted to hug it. I thanked my waiter like, like four times. Anyway, I, why? Why? That's, that's, that's what I'm leaving you with. And that's all the why we have time for. Do we, we'll, we'll post links to all the pieces, Max's pieces that we discussed and the, the bit about the Barnes Dance on our website, uh, DenverDiatribe.com. Follow us at DenverDiatribe on Twitter and uh, join our, our Facebook page and all that stuff. We'll see you here uh, next week.